Chapters 19 and 20 of The Way of All Flesh. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rhonda Fetterman. The Way of All Flesh by Samuel Butler. Chapter 19. This much, however, we may say in the meantime, that having lived to be nearly seventy-three years old, and died rich, he must have been in very fair harmony with his surroundings. I have heard it said, sometimes, that such and such a person's life was a lie. But no man's life can be a very bad lie. As long as it continues at all, it is at worst nine-tenths of it true. Mr. Pontifex's life not only continued a long time, but was prosperous right up to the end. Is this not enough? Being in this world, is it not our most obvious business to make the most of it? To observe what things do bona fide tend to long life and comfort, and to act accordingly? All animals except man know that the principal business of life is to enjoy it. And they do enjoy it as much as man and other circumstances will allow. He has spent his life best who has enjoyed it most. God will take care that we do not enjoy it any more than is good for us. If Mr. Pontifex is to be blamed, it is for not having eaten and drunk less, and thus suffered less from his liver, and lived perhaps a year or two longer. Goodness is not unless it tends toward old age and sufficiency of means. I speak broadly, and exceptus excipiendus. So the psalmist says, the righteous shall not lack anything that is good. Either this is mere poetical license, or it follows that he who lacks anything that is good is not righteous. There is a presumption also that he who has passed a long life without lacking anything that is good has himself also been good enough for practical purposes. Mr. Pontifex never lacked anything he much cared about. True, he might have been happier than he was if he had cared about things which he did not care for, but the gist of this lies in the, if he had cared. We have all sinned and come short of the glory of making ourselves as comfortable as we easily might have done, but in this particular case Mr. Pontifex did not care, and would not have gained much by getting what he did not want. There is no casting of swine's meat before men worse than that which would flatter virtue as though her true origin were not good enough for her. But she must have a lineage, deduced as it were by spiritual heralds, from some stock with which she had nothing to do. Virtue's true lineage is older and more respectable than any that can be invented for her. She springs from man's experience concerning his own well-being. And this, though not infallible, is still the least fallible thing we have. A system which cannot stand without a better foundation than this must have something so unstable within itself that it will topple over on whatever pedestal we place it. The world has long ago settled that morality and virtue are what bring men peace at the last. Be virtuous, says the copybook and you will be happy. Surely if a reputed virtue fails often in this respect, it is only an insidious form of vice, 
and if a reputed vice brings no very serious mischief on a man's later years, it is not so bad a vice as it is said to be. Unfortunately, though we are all of a mind about the main opinion that virtue is what tends to happiness, and vice what ends in sorrow, we are not so unanimous about details. That is to say, as to whether any given course, such we will say as smoking, has a tendency to happiness, or the reverse. I submit it as the result of my own poor observation that a good deal of unkindness and selfishness on the part of parents towards children is not generally followed by ill consequences to the parents themselves. They may cast a gloom over their children's lives for many years without having to suffer anything that will hurt them. I should say, then, that it shows no great moral obliquity on the part of parents if within certain limits they make their children's lives a burden to them. Granted that Mr. Pontifex's was not a very exalted character. Ordinary men are not required to have very exalted characters. It is enough if we are the same moral and mental stature as the main or mean part of men, that is to say, the average. It is involved in the very essence of things that rich men who die old shall have been mean. The greatest and wisest of mankind will be almost always found to be the meanest, the ones who have kept the mean best between excess either of virtue or vice. They hardly ever have been prosperous if they have not done this, and considering how many miscarry altogether, it is no small feather in a man's cap if he has been no worse than his neighbors. Homer tells us about someone who made it his business always to excel and to stand higher than other people. What an uncompanionable, disagreeable person he must have been! Homer's heroes generally came to a bad end, and I doubt not that this gentleman, whoever he was, did so sooner or later. A very high standard, again, involves the possession of rare virtues, and rare virtues are like rare plants or animals, things that have not been able to hold their own in the world. A virtue to be serviceable must, like gold, be alloyed with some commoner but more durable metal. People divide off vice and virtue as though they were two things, neither of which had with it anything of the other. This is not so. There is no useful virtue which has not some alloy of vice, and hardly any vice, if any, which carries not with it a little dash of virtue. Virtue and vice are like life and death, or mind and matter, things which cannot exist without being qualified by their opposite. The most absolute life contains death, and the corpse is still in many respects living, so also it has been said, If thou, Lord, wilt be extreme to mark what is done amiss, which shows that even the highest ideal we can conceive will yet admit so much compromise with vice as shall countenance the poor abuses of the time, if they are not too outrageous. That vice pays homage to virtue is notorious. We call this hypocrisy. There should be a word found for the homage which virtue not unfrequently pays, or at any rate would be wise in paying, to vice. 
I grant that some men will find happiness in having what we all feel to be a higher moral standard than others. If they go in for this, however, they must be content with virtue as her own reward, and not grumble if they find lofty quixotism and expensive luxury, whose rewards belong to a kingdom that is not of this world. They must not wonder if they cut a poor figure in trying to make the most of both worlds. Disbelieve as we may the details of the accounts which record the growth of the Christian religion, yet a great part of Christian teaching will remain as true as though we accepted the details. We cannot serve God and mammon. Straight is the way and narrow is the gate which leads to what those who live by faith hold to be best worth having and there is no way of saying this better than the Bible has done. It is well there should be some who think thus, and it is well there should be speculators in commerce, who will often burn their fingers, but it is not well that the majority should leave the mean and beaten path. For most men and most circumstances, pleasure, tangible material prosperity in this world, is the safest test of virtue. Progress has ever been through the pleasures rather than through the extreme sharp virtues, and the most virtuous have leaned to excess rather than to asceticism. To use a commercial metaphor, competition is so keen, and the margin of profits has been cut down so closely, that virtue cannot afford to throw any bona fide chance away and must base her action rather on the actual moneying out of conduct than on a flattering prospectus. She will not therefore neglect, as some do who are prudent and economical enough in other matters, the important factor of our chance of escaping detection, or at any rate, of our dying first. A reasonable virtue will give this chance its due value, neither more nor less. Pleasure, after all, is a safer guide than either right or duty. For, hard as it is to know what gives us pleasure, right and duty are often still harder to distinguish, and if we go wrong with them, will lead us into just as sorry a plight as a mistaken opinion concerning pleasure. When men burn their fingers through following after pleasure, they find out their mistake, and get to see where they have gone wrong more easily than when they have burnt them through following after a fancied duty or a fancied idea concerning right virtue. The devil, in fact, when he dresses himself in angel's clothes, can only be detected by experts of exceptional skill, and so often does he adopt this disguise that it is hardly safe to be seen talking to an angel at all and prudent people will follow after pleasure as a more homely but more respectable and on the whole much more trustworthy guide. Returning to Mr. Pontifex, over and above his having lived long and prosperously, he left numerous offspring, to all of whom he communicated not only his physical and mental characteristics, with no more than the usual amount of modification, but also no small share of characteristics which are less easily transmitted, I mean his pecuniary characteristics. It may be said that he acquired these by sitting still and letting money run, as it were, right up against him, 
but against how many does not money run who do not take it when it does or who even if they hold it for a little while cannot so incorporate it with themselves that it shall descend through them to their offspring mr pontifex did this he kept what he may be said to have made and money is like a reputation for ability more easily made than kept take him then for all in all i am not inclined to be so severe upon him as my father was judge him according to any very lofty standard and he is nowhere judge him according to a fair average standard and there is not much fault to be found with him i have said what i have said in the foregoing chapter once for all and shall not break my thread to repeat it it should go without saying in modification of the verdict which the reader may be inclined to pass too hastily not only upon mr george pontifex but also upon theobald and christina and now i will continue my story chapter twenty the birth of his son opened theobald's eyes to a good deal which he had but faintly realized hitherto he had had no idea how great a nuisance a baby was. Babies come into the world so suddenly at the end, and upset everything so terribly when they do come. Why cannot they steal in upon us with less of a shock to the domestic system? His wife, too, did not recover rapidly from her confinement. She remained an invalid for months. Here was another nuisance, and an expensive one which interfered with the amount which Theopold liked to put by out of his income against, as he said, a rainy day, or to make provision for his family, if he should have one. Now he was getting a family, so that it became all the more necessary to put money by, and here was the baby hindering him. Theorists may say what they like about a man's children being a continuation of his own identity, but it will generally be found that those who talk in this way have no children of their own. Practical family men know better. About twelve months after the birth of Ernest, there came a second, also a boy, who was christened Joseph, and in less than twelve months afterwards, a girl, to whom was given the name of Charlotte. A few months before this girl was born, Christina paid a visit to the John Pontifexes in London, and, knowing her condition, passed a good deal of time at the Royal Academy exhibition, looking at the types of female beauty portrayed by the academicians, for she had made up her mind that the child this time was to be a girl. Alethea warned her not to do this, but she persisted, and certainly the child turned out plain. But whether the pictures caused this or no, I cannot say. Theobald had never liked children. He had always got away from them as soon as he could and so had they from him. Oh, why was he inclined to ask himself, could not children be born into the world, grown up? If Christina could have given birth to a few full-grown clergymen in priest's orders, of moderate views but inclining rather to evangelicalism, with comfortable livings and in all respects facsimiles of Theobald himself, why, there might have been more sense in it or if people could buy ready-made children at a shop of whatever age and sex they liked, instead of always having to make them at home and to begin at the beginning with them. That might do better, but as it was, 
he did not like it. He felt as he had felt when he had been required to come and be married to Christina, that he had been going on for a long time quite nicely, and would much rather continue things on their present footing. In the matter of getting married he had been obliged to pretend he liked it. But times were changed, and if he did not like a thing now, he could find a hundred unexceptionable ways of making his dislike apparent. It might have been better if Theobald in his younger days had kicked more against his father. The fact that he had not done so encouraged him to expect the most implicit obedience from his own children. He could trust himself, he said, and so did Christina, to be more lenient than perhaps his father had been to himself. His danger, he said, and so again did Christina, would be rather in the direction of being too indulgent. He must be on his guard against this, for no duty could be more important than that of teaching a child to obey its parents in all things. He had read not long since of an eastern traveller who, while exploring somewhere in the more remote parts of Arabia and Asia Minor, had come upon a remarkably hardy, sober, industrious little Christian community, all of them in the best of health, who had turned out to be the actual living descendants of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, and two men in European costume, indeed, but speaking English with a broken accent, and by their color evidently oriental, had come begging to Battersby soon afterward, and represented themselves as belonging to this people. They had said they were collecting funds to promote the conversion of their fellow tribesmen to the English branch of the Christian religion. True, they turned out to be impostors for when he gave them a pound and Christina five shillings from her private purse, they went and got drunk with it in the next village but one to Battersby. Still, this did not invalidate the story of the eastern traveller. Then there were the Romans, whose greatness was probably due to the wholesome authority exercised by the head of a family over all its members. Some Romans had even killed their children, this was going too far, but then the Romans were not Christians, and knew no better. The practical outcome of the foregoing was a conviction in Theobald's mind, and if in his, then in Christina's, that it was their duty to begin training up their children in the way they should go, even from their earliest infancy. The first signs of self-will must be carefully looked for, and plucked up from the roots at once, before they had time to grow. Theobald picked up this numb serpent of a metaphor, and cherished it in his bosom. Before Ernest could well crawl, he was taught to kneel. Before he could well speak, he was taught to lisp the Lord's Prayer and the General Confession. How was it possible that these things could be taught too early? If his attention flagged or his memory failed him, here was an ill weed which would grow apace, unless it were plucked out immediately, and the only way to pluck it out was to whip him, or shut him up in a cupboard, or dock him of some of the small pleasures of childhood. Before he was three years old, he could read, and after a fashion, write. Before he was four, he was learning Latin, and could do rule of three sums. As for the child himself, he was naturally of an even temper. He doted upon his nurse, on kittens and puppies, 
and on all things that would do him the kindness of allowing him to be fond of them. He was fond of his mother, too, but as regards his father, he had told me in later life he could remember no feeling but fear and shrinking. Christina did not remonstrate with Theobald concerning the severity of the tasks imposed upon the boy, nor yet as to the continual whippings that were found necessary at lesson times. Indeed, when during any absence of Theobald's the lessons were entrusted to her, she found to her sorrow that it was the only thing to do, and she did it no less effectually than Theobald himself. Nevertheless, she was fond of her boy, which Theobald never was, and it was long before she could destroy all affection for herself in the mind of her firstborn. But she persevered. End of chapter 20 Recording by Rhonda Fetterman